Thanks for listening to The Vine's podcast. The Vine is a church in Austin, Texas, with the simple goal of following Jesus together. And we hope this message helps you in doing just that. Good morning, everyone. Um, the scripture reading this morning is from Nehemiah 4, 16 through 20, if you want to follow along. From that day on, half of my men did the work, while the other half were equipped with spears, shields, bows, and armor. The officers posted themselves behind all the people of Judah who were, in the, who were building the wall. Those who carried materials did their work with one hand and held a weapon in the other, and each of the builders wore his sword by his side as he worked. But the man who sounded the trumpet stayed with me. Then I said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, the work is extensive and spread out, and we are widely separated from each other along the wall. Wherever you hear the sound of the trumpet, join us there. Our God will fight for us. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, We are in the fourth week of this series that we created called Rebuild. Uh, We created this series because if we are honest, we know that there's parts of our life that need rebuilding. Whether it's our relationships or marriages whether it's our financial well-being, our physical health, our emotional well-being, there are aspects of our life that, that need to be restored. And we can also look around in our society and look at our community and know that there's places for us uh, together that we need to rebuild. There's many signs of our need of restoration. And so we are looking at these two books, Ezra and Nehemiah, these ancient stories, believing that as we study and discuss them, that God can show us some timeless principles and instruction on how we can rebuild our lives and our lives together. So last week, we met a man named Nehemiah. He was serving as cupbearer to the king, to the uh, king of Persia. And even though he's far removed from Jerusalem, even though he's probably never been to Jerusalem, when he had heard that the city walls were in ruins and the people were living in disgrace, it triggered something in Nehemiah, compassion, sadness, and a sense of call that he could be used by God to help rebuild the walls of the city. Now, we might ask, what's so important about rebuilding walls? Like, why is that so essential? Uh, Well, in the ancient Middle East, it was detrimental for a city to live without walls. They could be attacked at any moment. Without walls, there's no sense of protection, so you can't do the deeper work of uh, building about um, justice in a community. You couldn't develop a stable economy. There's no order that could take place in that city, and so walls were necessary. Uh, And as I've been thinking about this passage here in Nehemiah 4, I began to think about that idea of walls and more of just a picture of what walls could be for us as well as like an analogy of the fact that many of us, we need walls around our life. We need protection. We need to have boundaries established. And personally, I've been thinking about the habits, the practices, the rhythms and routines of our days that create a sense of uh, boundaries and protection that we can have to remain healthy, to remain where we need to be. We might think that uh, freedom is a life without walls, but what we find oftentimes is 
Walls are helpful for us to experience freedom, to flourish as people. For instance, a river flows when there's boundaries to it. Like it actually allows it to flow, allows life to flourish, and without boundaries, it simply becomes a swamp. And so it is with our life. Yet what is surprising for the people of Jerusalem is they got used to life without walls. They got used to life of being vulnerable and exposed. They got used to living with fear. And they lived like this for 140 years. For 140 years, the people lived there with a sense of fear. Uh, They were struck by a sense of apathy. They got used to it. Uh, They lived their life vulnerably. And uh, they were content with living among rubble. Now, this shouldn't be that surprising because many of us, we grow used to the dysfunction of our own life. I mean, even think about some of our family systems, how we get used to just kind of the elements that, of the people in which we share life with, how one family member can snap at any moment. It's okay to yell in your family. It's okay to, to, to distance and be unemotional, be uh, unapproachable. We get used to the dysfunctions that we often have in our family, and uh, sometimes we even stop seeing it. We all live with broken walls in our midst, and oftentimes we can grow used to them so much that we don't even acknowledge it. That's what they were doing for 140 years. This is even 14 years after Ezra went back and rebuilt the community. They were rebuilding the community, but they didn't care to rebuild the walls. I think this is often a, uh, a cautionary tale for us, that we too can grow used to a life without protection, without boundaries, a life of chaos. We can get used to living with apathy. We can get used to living in doubt. And we can have, get used to living with fear that can rob us of purpose and joy. Uh, what I've, I've saw in, our, in my study for this past week is that there's so important to have those outer walls established. There's actually a British archaeologist by the name of Kathleen Kenyon who spent her life studying Jerusalem. And what she found was that Jerusalem was built and established like there is like an interconnected uh, series of terraces and walls that went out throughout the city, and, and it all led back to the outer wall. So without the outer wall there in place, it was impossible to build the structure of the rest of their life together. And they got used to that for 140 years. In our own lives, we can grow used to it as well. And it can, be deep, it can be difficult to do the deeper work that we're called to do, the work of restoration, rebuilding. For instance, uh, you know, this is why many of us, we create rules of life, which that idea of a rule of life doesn't sound that life-giving, like a rule. Uh, but all it is, is it's like an intention around what are the habits I want to live with? What, are the, what is the structure I want for my days? It's like simple commitments. I made mine a couple weeks ago around creating boundaries for my days to encourage healthy habits, to encourage the lifestyle that I feel called to. So the walls for me are like walls of what time to go to bed, Uh, walls around what time should I be present with my kids, around alcohol consumption, around an intentional prayer life, around uh, practicing Sabbath, a wall around having date nights occasionally. You know, like this is like, these are healthy walls to establish so that, that there could be flourishing and uh, this isn't me like bragging spiritually, like, oh, I have a rule of life. I share this because I'm a mess without it. 
Like, <laughs> this, is, this is the opposite of bragging. Like, I have to have these walls for me to flourish, for me to, to live in the way that I feel called to, the way that I bring about life and life to the fullness. So this, this is what I need. And I wonder for you as well, what might the walls in your life uh, that you need, what are, what are those walls of sense of protection, the establishment of healthy habits and rhythms that might be helpful for you too? But the purpose of walls are more than just for the individual. Walls were also created for the community. Now in our culture, we can see how walls are used and, and misused in our world. Walls to exclude, walls to push away. But being members of Christ's kingdom, it invites us to reconsider how we use our walls in this world. In Jesus' kingdom, walls aren't meant to exclude or refuse the needs of the vulnerable. It's actually flipped upside down. Walls are used so that we can create a sense of refuge. We can create a sanctuary, a place where safety can happen, where people can have space to heal, especially the vulnerable and exploited and this is, this is what's God's intention for Jerusalem. Jerusalem literally means city of peace. Jerusalem was meant to be a place where peace could be established, where right order could be made so that people could be re- rejuvenated and experience newness of life. It was, that's what the walls were intended to be. So in, here in chapter 4, Nehemiah calls and inspires the people. It's time for us to rebuild the walls. Don't get used to the rubble that have been around here for generation and generation. In our time, right here and now, let's restore, let's rebuild. And so they started doing so. And in Scripture, Nehemiah says that they began to work, and they began to work with all of their heart. And when that happened, uh, two things took place. One, progress began to happen. And when progress began to happen, an enemy showed up opposition emerged. I have found it to be a near guarantee that when spiritual vitality takes place, a conflict will emerge. For instance, when I think about my childhood, most Sundays we would drive away from Spring Valley Baptist Church there in Dallas, Texas, and after this spiritual high of being in worship together, we would almost most Sunday mornings get into a fight about where we're going to eat lunch. Like, it was just like almost you could script it. Like, is it Black Eyed Pea today? Who is for that, against that? You know, it's just like amazing how that almost always took place. I've grown almost nervous when I experience a spiritual breakthrough, when I feel like I've taken big strides in my spiritual well-being, almost just this concern about, I wonder where the opposition will come up. And maybe you've experienced that too, right after a spiritual breakthrough, right after kind of coming more spiritually awake and rebuilding your life, conflict emerges. There will be opposition as we rebuild our lives. Jesus said this in John 10.10. He says that the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but I have come so that you might have life and life to the fullest. That right there is the conflict that is a part of the human experience. A thief that's there to kill, steal, and destroy and our Savior who is here to give us life abundant. In this story, opposition came when they began to rebuild that wall. The opposition was in the neighboring tribes. They began to see the progress that was taking place, and they 
began to go against it. And so they started their strategy. Their strategy was pretty much twofold. The first part of their strategy was that of ridicule. They began to ridicule the people. This is what we find in Nehemiah 4. Uh, they, they said to the people, what are those feeble Jews doing? Will they restore their walls? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? Can they bring the stones back to life in that heap of rubble, burned as they are? Tobiah the Ammonite. Oh, he was the worst. Tobiah. He was the worst. He said, what are they rebuilding? Even a fox climbing up on it would break down their walls of stone. That was like an ancient smackdown talk right there. Even a fox could break it down. So they began to ridicule the people, like just, like, like just trying to tear them down. Later on, they began to focus their ridicule to Nehemiah, ta- attacking his character, saying that he was power-hungry, that he wanted to be king, that he was deceitful. But Nehemiah has like a clarity of who he is, and he has a clarity of who, what God has called him to do. And so this accusations, this ridicule seems to just roll off of him and he has, like, not the sense of pride, but the sense of quiet confidence that this is what God is calling us to do, that we are going to rebuild the walls and God will be faithful. And when they realized that ridicule wasn't going to do it, then they went on to their second strategy, which was to inspire fear. Fear is a powerful thing, especially when a group of people are trying to do something that requires all of them. It, it, it's a difficult thing for us to, to work faithfully with courage and imagination when we in, 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 have in, uh, fear all wrapped, wrapped around us. And so these neighboring communities began just to threaten to attack. And again and again and again, they began to spread rumors. The army's coming. It's coming tonight. It's coming when you least expect it. We're going to attack and you're going to fall. Again and again, that they had this singular goal And that was to cause fear and chaos among the hearts of the people. And we know how fear zaps us, zaps our courage, zaps our hope. You can almost hear it in the people's words in Nehemiah 4 when they said, Our enemies said before they know it or see it, we will be right there among them and will kill them and put an end to their work. Then the Jews who lived near them came and told us ten times over, wherever you turn, they will attack us. So these seeds of fear are running rampant among the community. The reality is, this is a spoiler alert. I'm so sorry if I ruined this for you, but the enemy never attacks. Like, if you continue to read through Nehemiah, the enemy never showed up, never attacked, but it was almost enough just to threaten to do it. The threats of war were not true. But their fear was. And oftentimes when we are interacting with people, we might oftentimes just get into this debate around whether or not something's true or not true. But what we need to remember is that regardless of what that thing is true, the fear that people are are dealing with, that is true. And Nehemiah doesn't refute what the, the threats were. Instead, like a good leader, Nehemiah took steps to dissipate fear to prepare the people in case the enemy did show up. And this is what Nehemiah, this is how he responded. He said, Therefore I stationed some people behind the lowest parts of the wall at the exposed places. Nehemiah, in his wisdom, began to study the wall and then began to see the lowest parts of the wall and he began to station uh, the people there, station soldiers there. 
the places where they were the most vulnerable, that is where Nehemiah was concerned with. The places where the enemy can most often enter. And I, I just, you know, for me, I was processing this passage, and I just want to stop and ask you, what is the lowest parts of your wall? Like, what are the parts of your life where you feel like you're the most vulnerable? Where the enemy could easily sneak in? Where, place where progress could be hindered? The place in your life where unhealth seems just to, to find its way in? That might be a destructive habit, a toxic relationship that trips you up. Maybe it's this battle with destructive habits and substances, media, pornography, debt, unresolved bitterness that seems just to be a low part in the wall. The reality is if we rebuild our life, we must post guards in those places. And furthermore, we need to find people who can stand in the gap with us and for us. I know I have people in my life who I have explicitly asked to call out my blind spots. People in my life who I, every question's on the table. <laughs> I'm not beyond this. So we, we have the freedom to ask about the low places of our wall, the places that we are maybe blind to so that we can hopefully see more clearly. And we take a commitment to each other to love each other enough, not only to point out those low parts but to stand in the gap and to fight for each other. And this is what takes place. And so Nehemiah sees this. He has a strategy, putting low people in the wall. And then the people began, because of that, their fear began to reduce and progress began to pick up. And what we find here as we read through Nehemiah, the greater uh, the, greater the progress, the greater the opposition. The higher the wall, the louder the accusations and the threats And as Nehemiah saw the people continue to wrestle with fear, he said this, The man who sounded the trumpet, he stayed with me. Then I said to the nobles and the officials and the rest of the people, The work is extensive. It's spread out. And we are widely separated from each other along the wall. So wherever you hear the sound of the trumpet, join us there. Our God will fight for us. So his idea, his strategy was because the people were so spread out, because they, they, they did not see each other, they, they felt vulnerable. There's this idea of, okay, we're going to have trumpets that are going to be spread along the wall. And if ever we're attacked, a trumpet's going to sound and we're going to gather there. The plan was clear, but I love the nuance of what he said at the end. It's not only that we're going to gather there and we're going to fight, but he also said uh, that our God will fight for us. How, how, will, how will we find victory? How will we fight? Well, God will show up in our midst and God will help us in our battle. When I think about our culture, this thing that we are hearing in this passage, it's so challenging for us because when we are vulnerable, when we feel weak, what are we taught to do? Are we taught to blow a trumpet and let everyone know that we are weak? No, we do the opposite. We are taught to hide it. Oh, how's it going? Oh, great, great. Doing fine, doing fine. Uh, you know, it's like we are taught along the way that there's something sad about being a person with weakness. Yet we find that our strength comes in surprising places. It makes me think of my friends who are part of the AA program. In their meetings, before they speak, they say two different things. Hi, my name is. And then they say what? And I'm an alcoholic. 
Like for them, it's like this, it's this reality that they're blowing trumpets as they meet and they gather together. Like I'm not beyond being in need. I'm not beyond feeling weak. I need companionship. I need support. This flies in the face of our culture where we value, we love stories of people bootstrapping it on their own. The self-made man, the self-made woman. We long for independence and autonomy, but the surprising truth is in Christ's kingdom, the sound of weakness is actually the sound of strength. In Christ's kingdom, the cry of dependence is the eventual sound of victory. The blowing of trumpets in Christ's kingdom is an opportunity for God to display his faithfulness, his strength, his goodness. This is something that we have to unlearn. This is something that we're going to have to get past. Because we know through our scripture that when we are weak, there we are strong. Two weeks ago, in my own life, I felt uh, a bit weak. I think, honestly, it was just the toll of 2020 and everything that's come along these last four months along the way, uh, I just felt incredibly low. I felt really blue. And yes, that's even with all my boundaries, all my walls, my spiritual walls that I had, you know, I still felt low. And so I had a, just a simple prayer I prayed that morning. Uh, it wasn't like a beautiful or profound. It was the simple prayer Maybe you have said too, which is, help me. God, I, I just need you to help me. I was there in my bedroom and I was shared that prayer as I was getting ready for a sermon. I was writing a sermon, which by the way, it's kind of hard as a pastor when you have a down day and you still have to write a sermon, inspiring hope. I know people like other jobs you can kind of tune out, but it's kind of hard when you just feel depressed, blue, and sad. You're like, all right, how can I inspire people? But there I was looking at the blank screen, trying to work on the sermon, and uh, my daughter Dylan walks in, and uh, I've welcomed the distraction, so I, of course, come on over. She said, Dad, what are you doing? And I said, um, I'm writing a sermon, you know, the little talks you hear me give on Sunday. She said, do you have to do this every week? I was like, yeah, You're telling me, yes, I do. Uh, and then she looked at the screen and looked at me, and for whatever reason, she said, you know what, Dad, you're a really good pastor. And then she uh, gave me this, like, hug. But it wasn't like a normal hug. It was like this long, long, long hug, really tight hug. And um, maybe it was because I was tired or maybe it was because I was lo uh, feeling low. But that statement and that embrace felt like God's response to a little cry for help. Um, also, just as a pastor, like, uh, one of my fears is that my kids will, you know, the, the, the people who know you the best will may, maybe uh, believe in you the least. It's just so, uh, my nine-year-old daughter, in her own little way, just trying to love on me. And it moved me to tears. Uh, after that hug, she was confused by the fact I was just one, it was just like, it wasn't crying, guys. It was just like one masculine tear. Like a Denzel Washington, like it just one. And uh, she was confused, and she was like, did I say something wrong? And I said, no, no, Dylan, you were just used by God to love on me today. Um, I promise you, the, next, the rest of that week, every day she would look at me deeply in my eyes and go, you're a really good pastor, Dad, and try to give me a hug. And I'd be like, that's a one-time thing. That was a one-time thing. Don't worry. Um, but 
it was just this reminder for me that small cries for help in Christ's kingdom is something, uh, it's like blowing a trumpet where God will fight for us. And in our simple prayers where we ask for help, that is what it is. It is a sounding of a trumpet going, I need the community to rally and I need a God who's going to fight for me. And in rebuilding Christ's kingdom, it's not done through autonomy. You're not going to rebuild your life alone. It won't happen through bootstrapping. It is reverse, uh, re, uh, reserved for those who are strong enough to ask for help. Strong enough for people to blow a trumpet. Though you might feel spread out, though you might feel isolated, for you to make it known that the community can rally around you and for you. So I just want to tell you, like, as like just a part of our church, you are not alone. You're just not alone. There are people who love you and are for you, who are, who are standing on the sidelines waiting to be called in. So don't fake it especially in this season where it's easy just to be anonymous. Don't fake it. As a community, we're going to up our game on how we pray for each other. Did you know that there's a website on our, on our church's website, divineawesome.org backslash pray, where you can share your prayer needs. That's like a way for you to sound a trumpet. And there are over 50 people who are waiting for that opportunity to pray for you, to lift you. So don't let pride get in the way of the strength that's given for those who are weak. And as we do this, as we do this for each other, as we seek to each, uh, help each other in the rebuilding of our lives, we're living into our mission that we believe we're called to, to follow Jesus together. For this is what Jesus did. Jesus heard every small, simple prayer whispered by people who all they could muster was a help me God. He heard that and he left the comforts of heaven to come to this world to stand in the gap to stand in the gap between heaven and earth, to stand in the gap between two different crosses, to stand in the brokenness of our own lives, the places where we feel weak, where the enemy feels like could come in at any moment. Jesus did this so that we would know that we're not alone and that he would look at his followers and say, do this for each other, fight for each other. And when you do this, I will be there. And because of his life and because of his love, we now have peace. We now have walls that allow us to have a refuge, a place of healing and wholeness. So friends, call on him today and let us rebuild our lives together.